0: Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science related topics on the show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they and you could found a science backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about science specific science related topics such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot. And it's all going to be about science on this podcast. There are two main episode types. One, the case study where one or a group of people talk about what they did and you can kind of get a sense of how you could do it as well. To the second type, which is a group talking around a theme such as Citric Greening, which is coming up soon, or neurodegenerative disorders, which I'm also working on. Please sign up for our newsletter to get a other resources and outside podcast content from Guests My Own Research, which comes out every Monday. Join us every Tuesday for new podcast releases and check out the website every Thursday for something new. You can find us at at here on Twitter, Facebook, and my website learningwithlowell.com. And don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, and leave a review. It takes really only 10 seconds for you to do any of those things, which helps me and my guests create great content because it gives us feedback, lets other people know about it, and the more people will know about science and support it, the better everything is. Today we're joined with Kira Havens, TED Talk speaker, CEO, founder of biotech companies, bioengineer, United States Air Force, and now works at Pivot Bio. We talk about what is nature, how we think about it in a weird way, how do you make GMOs, what she thinks about in large systems. And those are the three of the big things I think you're going to get from this conversation. Also remember to check the timestamps in the show notes. They are hyperlinked on the website Learning with Lowell. So if you want to navigate around the audio, check out what's going on. Listen to little snippets to see if it's right for you. Please do so because that's why I put them there. I hope every one of you get something from this conversation and let me know what you feel and think about it. If you want to see more content like this, less content like this, more content like I've done before, you know let me know and i will work to get you that let's get into this you like to think about how to change systems and like how to go about that process so i was i'm kind of curious what is the system that you're trying to consider changing and what are the roadblocks
1: the system that i'm that i'm currently interested in is agriculture because we've been doing it this way for for quite a while And there's a lot of dependencies in that system, right? There's a whole logistics chain that farmers rely on to get crops from point A to point B. There's even more logistics when it comes to brands and how they acquire ingredients for their product. And, you know, the grocery chain after that where it gets to the consumer everything is very distant from everything else and right now you have a system that really relies on what one of my friends has called sterile field agriculture right the vast tracts of land being farmed for cereals for staples like corn and wheat and rice and that sort of thing they are structured so that nothing else grows in those fields and you know we're coming up on kind of an inflection point here for humanity there are more people and by 2050 we're going to have you know 9 billion folks on the planet and the question is how do they all how do they all eat so agriculture right now is a really interesting combination where you have a lot of forces at play right you've got a big push to return to a more i'm going to use air quotes here natural type of farming you've got a push from technology to increase productivity you've got a push from an environmental standpoint looking at the impacts of modern day agriculture and how those can be improved. So there's a lot of forces at play. And I think that that with a little creativity, there's there are actually some really good paths forward.
0: And as a nature natural echoing point or a, a off point that like when people think of the forests in the United States, they think, oh, these are really naturally nature-rific, you know, things. Not really. They're actually, they, you know, because the fires like they're not they don't actually grow like in uh, in Germany. But there's like the black forest that like grow really really dense and that's kind of what a forest looks like when it's more to its own devices like a lot of our forests are the way they are because of fires and stuff like that's in a limited like in the midwest for instance and in the i know in england they had they would like really do some like planning when it came to their forest and like how to get the most from it and manage it at the same time so it's like Like what is nature?
1: The Native Americans they actually manage their forests again with fires to clear out the underbrush and all of that. And you know it's kind of interesting when you look at towns that have been established for a really long time on, say, the East Coast. They're actually developing stable ecosystems around the trees that have been planted in these cities that have been there for 400, 500 years, right? So there's there is a tendency to think of nature only as a thing that has been untouched by people. But those spaces are becoming smaller and smaller and the bulk of nature actually exists around us and is managed one way or another. so just rejecting our role in that management in that in that active interplay between the environment and ourselves that's really doing a disservice I think to to the many different ways that we already impact the world around us and to the the potential benefit we could be having right
0: Oh definitely I think that's because you have a responsibility and I think with responsibility as Spider Man, and I think the Bible before that said, with great responsibility comes, uh, no, great power comes great responsibility.
1: This is very, very true. And you know, you mentioned just just briefly there about how you always want to know the downsides of of whatever you're you're looking into. And that's, you know, not something people always consider. They're not willing to do a risk analysis that follows all the way through to the end of their projected experiment or technology or business, right? There's there is a increasing tendency. Well, I don't know if it's increasing or if it's just always been there, but to include externalities in a discussion of cost and benefit, right? Well, it's water. It doesn't cost anything. It's free. You know, Nestle and their their ownership of water is a big, big hot topic right now. And there's actually an interesting economic discussion by Kate Raworth that looks at what she calls donut economics, where you have a social contract on the inner ring and you've got an ecological maximum on the outer ring, right? So how do we provide enough for the society we want to have without overtaxing our environmental resources? And part of the shift towards that type of economics is going to involve a discussion of externalities, a pricing of those externalities, and factoring those into the costs of life cycles, you know, the, the overall sustainability of a given product. Because right now we don't do a very good job of, of that.
0: Hey, we're not very good at limiting ourselves. Like the, <laughs> This is true. <laughs> in England, they used to have lots of forests. When Caesar, the guy who destroyed Rome, well, not really Caesar. It was more his, his nephew. But when he invaded Britain, like it was full of forests. But by the end of the Hundred Years' War, a lot of the forests were stripped. And actually, Admiral Nelson would go around and he'd throw nuts on the ground. And people were like, why are you doing this? And he was like, well, I'm just, you know, getting ready for the next ship. You know, like building the next ships. Because they had to import wood from the Americas and Norway. If you if you if you don't manage it responsibly, you have to keep drawing from without the system, and at at, at some point you run into this is one planet, and we only know yeah. organic life lives here. You know, we're kind of a, just a giant petri dish.
1: That's very true, you know. And the but the willingness to pretend that it is not part of the same system has been what has what has gotten us this kind of kind of into this situation as it is, right? It's linear style of thinking rather than a circular style of thinking. And there's a number of schools that have really advocated for this sort of biomimicry Right. Looking at biological systems and the plasticity and the way they adapt and the way they integrate new input without without maybe com- that moving into the mainstream right now. But it's kind of interesting. The, the A recent study by B.G. Henderson showed that if they just analyze companies and the language that they use in their corporate report, the more successful companies are the ones that use this biological language of connectivity and adaptation and flexibility in their growth. And so it's there's there's a growing interest, I think, in complex systems and how they behave. And there's, you know, obviously a lot of examples we can pull from in, in the natural world to to organize our own new set of systems so that they all the waste streams are recycled back into productive streams so that we are capable of being both resilient and robust. So I think there's a lot to be learned in many different fields, not just technology, from the living world around us.
0: Innovation happens when you combine multiple things, not digging deeply, but digging wide as well and kind of matching and pulling from multiple disciplines. So looking at life, which we we have, I mean, how long has life lived on this planet? Hundreds of millions of years to draw on, but companies are in the United States, only like 300 years old, you can kind of get a much interesting sense of life cycles when you have more data to pull from.
1: Life cycles of, of a billion years, that's, that's good in a historical sense. But it went, when it comes right down to the human life cycle, right, where we're operating on a much shorter time scale. So 300-year-old companies sound enormously old to us. It seems, seems massively old. And I think that difference in timescale is one that is not very appreciated. There's been... The, the pace of change is far more rapid than it has been in the past.
0: Our brains, while they have evolved and have actually have shrunk in the last couple ten thousand years, also had adaptations so that we think uh, quicker. But it has shrunk by like by the size of a lemon. Like that brain that was out hunting and gathering and stuff like that is the same brain that understands calculus, and statistics, and is able to look at these like macro things. And so I always think that's the same brain. Like just imagine but it's also a limited brain in how we think of in like the short term like you're you're mentioning
1: the limitation and the 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 ability to hold different concepts different timescales to operate on these to to live both within a system and an imagine a system as it could be that's you know like you said one of our one of our greatest strengths being able to recreate the world around us and so i'm excited to see the way biology and insights from bio, biology are Moving us towards a new style of economy, a new style of manufacture, a new style of healthcare. It's, it's involved in so many different areas. A lot of it depends on kind of seeing this new sort of system come into being.
0: You founded a biotech company a while ago that made flowers, or made a genetically modified flowers so that they would change colors. I was listening to this Y Combinator female founder conference, and they talked about how male and females go about running and founding startups differently. You know, guys tend to be a bit more uh, confident, shall we say, and women seem a bit more tentative in their abilities. And so I'm curious, is that the, especially for scientists, is that, is that does that resonate with you? Did you find it hard to kind of like talk up what you were doing and that was like a, something you had to learn or is that something that like does not resonate at all with the story you've had?
1: You know, as far as founding the company goes, I, I have spent most of my life working in male dominated fields. I, I, personally don't feel much by way of intimidation, I guess, in that in that area. That has never been a, a problem for me. I've I'm a confident speaker. I feel as though I can articulate my my concepts well. What I did notice was myself and my co-founder. My co-founder was someone who, and again with the air quotes, looked like a scientist, right? He was six feet tall, he was bald, he had glasses, he wore a lab coat, you know, and uh, we fell into very different roles he was the technical expertise I was the visionary and that was that was a more comfortable role for me in that that role we were playing but what I realized um, was that I was I was reluctant to take full ownership of it and you know my thinking was well this is my co-founder I don't want to lock him out but after after a while, I began introducing myself as the CEO rather than the co-founder, and that made a big difference in the way my conversations were received, my thoughts were received, you know, the, the ability to take on that leadership, even in something as simple as saying, I own this in this way, it was a really it's, it's a really powerful statement. Um, so being able to say that with confidence is something I would encourage everybody to, to do instead of trying to, to spread the, to spread kind of the credit around, make sure you always thank your team and, you know, they know how important you are and everything, but it's really important for people to feel like there is one person to go to, that there is someone in charge. And I don't think I'd realize that that was such a key element of this to start.
0: Mm -hmm. you gotta you gotta have a little bit that of that steve jobs where you sit up there and you're like gandhi martin luther king me (laughs) which is a (laughs) A a little bit yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. but yeah giving credit because then like who would want to work for someone who constantly is stealing credit but
1: well and this is another another aspect yeah the setting of standards and the you know the uncompromising if you don't meet these standards you know we'll we will have to we will have to address that that was another thing that you know i I learned kind of on the fly while, while I was building the company. But honestly, it was, wasn't until I worked for another person who had uncompromising standards and wasn't afraid to let people know that they were uncompromising, that it really kind of came into focus for me.
0: Which one do you think is most effective for the way you go about it? the uncompromising, somewhat compromising, or completely compromising? <laughs> Wait, I imagine sure. completely compromising does not work well.
1: So I can just I can only speak to my experience, but whenever I stepped away from the vision that I wanted to put forth, whenever I said, well, I guess we can do it that way or I you know, that's not so important, let's change it, whenever I stepped away from the thing that I knew I wanted to do, I spoke with less confidence, I wasn't as invested in it, it wasn't it was not a good thing for for me to do because that sort of compromising it's possible to do that on on some elements, but when it comes to the core core strategies, the core of the vision, that you have to remain true to no matter what, because you're the only one with the ability to bring people along on that ride.
0: Jumping back to a technical question, like some people, when they imagine GMO, there's like this pear and apple with like staples. And I thought that was like a really good way to demonstrate the, the disconnect in the reality versus... The, the thought of it. So how how do because you've actually made a GMO? So what is that process like? And is it the people who have concerns? Could you speak to them? Because I'm sure you have like some frequently asked questions that you tend to get hit with.
1: Oh, always. You know, genetically modified organisms. They are a a subject of great conversation these days, and I think there's a lot of really interesting discussions going on. The the image that you're referring to is actually the one that kind of started me down this journey of attempting to build a beautiful uh, GMO, right? Because those are two words you don't hear together very often. And like you said, it is an apple that's been sliced in half and it's stuck on top of a pear and they're just stapled together with like wood staples or something like that. And, um, you know, the the actual technical process of building a GMO is knowledge-based. You have to know the, ge- the genetics of the organism you're working with. You have to know the type of molecular tools you are using. You have to know where that genetic information goes. You have to know how that genetic information is expressed. You have to know what that genetic information makes. And then you have to know what the product actually does when it reaches the outside world. There is a lot of knowledge that goes into every step. But the, the point of that image is not that um, is, is about the crosstalk that happens between scientists and, uh, scientists that make GMOs and people that encounter them in their lives. Um, the, the crosstalk is that scientists will answer this question with a technical definition. They will explain how you synthesize a strand of DNA and how you insert it into a, a, a genome and how that DNA becomes protein. That's what they'll tell you. What's actually going on in that image, and I think in a lot of discussions, is a philosophical conversation about the nature of self, right? What does it mean if my DNA can be changed? Is that really the core of who I am? And is that the core of this thing? And have you made it not that thing anymore by changing it? So there's a there's a bigger discussion going on here about the philosophical implications of what happens when we reach into nature and make it different. And so I, of course, come from the, the school of thought that humans can improve on the natural world. And I think we do this all the time in a variety of ways. Um, but as long as we keep from having this conversation directly, we end up in kind of these circular discussions where, as you said, eventually you get right down to it and people are just like, well, that just feels unnatural. I just don't like it. So I think that's, that's why that image is in that presentation and why I think it's so important.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the, the, the discussion about the, the ship of Theseus, like if you keep replacing different parts of the ship, at what point does it become an entirely different ship?
1: And it's for me, so that's actually a subject I've been exploring in a series of essays. Um, it, right now, they are not published anywhere; they're just just with me here. But the question really is in the relationship of the of the ship itself to the observer, right? If Theseus shows up again, does he recognize this as his ship? That's this is a question for for discussion. And for me, what that thought experiment means is that. It is easier to justify self-modification of the genome, right? Because you are always in constant relationship to your body. If you dye your hair, if you get colored contacts, if you paint your nails, right, you are still the same person. So if you choose to make that change, there's no discrepancy there. There's no conflicts. You are still you. You are a creature of change. And this is just one more iteration. When you choose to make that change outside of yourself, now we're talking about a very different question of, responsibility right who gets to choose what changes are made and what is the criteria behind those
0: like most people be like oh you know if you have a genetic problem people be like okay yeah you know you you struggle with it you're responsible with it that makes sense it's like if you were to decide to go on a generational ship to another star system and it's going to be multiple generations you know the first generation decided it and i think we but the second generation didn't but they're locked in there's there's some really nice fantasy books about exploring that topic about how like the grandchildren yeah. don't don't see it. There's one called Aurora by.
1: Yes, that's just what I was going to mention by Kim Stanley Robinson. He did a killer job with that with that book. I think it gets into this just perfectly.
0: No spoilers. I really like. The no AI. spoilers. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to like kind of like delve into that concept. It...
1: But it also gets into that broader concept of uh, managing environments, managing ecosystems as a whole, right? Who is making those decisions? How is that algorithm informed as to what choices are the best choices, right? Um, I think there's an interesting parallel here when we talk about our own genetic information and how that applies to um, to communities with different standards of, uh, different standards of I guess, technological depth that they're willing to tolerate. So one interesting aspect of uh, of this is that when you know, when you know what your genetic makeup is, you are able to um, manage what your children, what genetic the genetic makeup of your children will be, right? If I, a person with blue eyes, marries another person with blue eyes, and we decide to have children, they will likely have blue eyes. We have chosen that combination already, right? Um, There are, you know, there's right now a discussion going on about what does it look like if we choose to manage that flow of information, not through what we've done for centuries, but through deliberate um, interaction with genetic material, if we choose instead to have green eyes or brown eyes or other traits. Um, So that's one, the very active interaction, a very active intervention, I guess. And there's another uh another discussion going on. And actually one group called the Dor Yeshurim have have embraced this. Um they only uh they only date for marriage for kids, right? It's it's a very orthodox culture. And in their in their culture, a disease runs through, you know, it's it's a, a disease is very prevalent, it's a genetic disease, but they're able to use testing to identify who may date who, and thereby eliminate the possibility of this disease showing up in their children, right? So there's actually an agreed-upon social use for the genetic information of this community to achieve a goal that the community has decided is, is to their benefit. Um, and this is a very—it sounds very— um, rigid and very structural, I guess, to a society where we are used to, you know, ideals of romantic love and um, a whole different way of identifying potential uh, mates, right? Um, but I think there's, it's very important to allow for these discussions to at least take place or give people the tools to have them because the, the most effective management of this resource is going to come uh, it, it is not going to be handed down on high, right? It's going to be a lot of, as we said, kind of discussion and uh, identifying who has the responsibility to take on these choices.
0: That's just a, not a really fascinating discussion. I think there's only been, there are only a few very simple organisms that can swap DNA. So it's kind of interesting as one of the few organisms that can do it purposely.
1: Everything swaps DNA all the time. <laughs> It hops around, it hops around like crazy. Um, and That's, that's maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but there is a lot of what they call horizontal transfer between organisms that are very different in many different ways. So, you know, I think this goes back to, to kind of the idea that nature is this monolith of perfection that never changes. And that's, that's just, it's just not true. It changes all the time, constantly. So it's, the, the intentionality of it is maybe the new thing here, right, in this particular case. But, but genetic information is very, uh, it, is, it is fluid.
0: Well, that's evolution for you, you know, but I'm just, but like, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, things have to change for evolution to work. The question I wanted to ask, which is what, where, where do you want to be? Ba- ba- the question basically is, is where do you want to be in five years? How do you want to change and how have you changed in the last five years as well?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you could say my thoughts on this topic have evolved because there definitely has been some casualties, honestly. Um, So I think I told you, I started off in the lab behind the bench, very um, working with abstracted concepts, right? Um, So I I was a molecular biologist. I worked with the DNA. I worked with the proteins, you know, that was That was my job. And I fully believed that science would save the world, that biotechnology was the path to growing more food, to better health solutions, to a more environmentally friendly future. Um, And it wasn't until I started looking into this, uh, this gap between the work I did in the lab and what people thought I did that I realized that, there's a pretty big misconception. And for me, at first, it was just on the technical side, I thought, as I'm sure many scientists do, oh, if I could just explain this better, if I could just let them know, you know, the way we do this, they'd be told the fear would go away, right? So it was still definitely a me and them sort of conversation going on in my head. Uh, And it wasn't until that, that pear and that apple kind of uh, showed up that it clicked for me that it's, it's not about, uh, not about the technical aspects of it. It's about the, the human aspects of it, the philosophical aspects of it. And in a very practical sense, it doesn't matter how much technology you build in the lab if the system outside of the lab is not prepared to accept it and move it through the world right? And this can be something as uh, you know mundane as logistics. Does the actual logistical structure exist to make use of your innovation? It can be as complex as politics, right? Does Is there the political will to adopt this innovation or to reject the prior industry that exists that will be displaced by it? Sometimes the answer is no. We can see it playing out with coal and solar right now. You know, there's there's so much more outside of the lab that need where groundwork needs to be prepared in order to to again build the new system that can rest on the innovation and the scientific discovery to usher in a a method of production or a method of distribution that's much more compatible with today's goals, right? So that's that's really a big area where I've where I've shifted focus away from the intricacies of the lab and I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm I'm a huge nerd about molecular biology. I love the idea of synthetic biology and what we can do with it. Um but the systems are really what capture my imagination now. And what I would love to see five years from now is to be a part of one of those shifts, be a part of a shift um, that, that did allow for us to set aside uh, legacy technology in favor of a new technology or a new innovation that maybe... Um, That changes a fundamental structure of the way we provide energy or the way we distribute food or grow food or, you know, something that really, really changes the game for us.
0: It almost doesn't matter how great your technology is if the society isn't ready or if it's not done in the way that society can accept it. For instance, there's a there's the person who who figured out that, you know, not using the same knives when you when you're, you know, having an operation or having a woman give birth reduces the the female uh, mortality rate and he went about telling people that in a very aggressive way to the point where he was fired and sent back to india and so then people didn't know that like germs and that type of thing were spreading and killing people
1: sure hand washing too he was I think he was committed to a sanitarium, actually, you know, because he was so insistent and there wasn't the groundwork of either understanding. um, And, you know, quite frankly, there's pride involved in that particular thing. Even now, doctors washing their hands is a big problem for hospitals. And so it's, it's not something that just magically goes away, right? There's a lot of infrastructure work that needs to be done.
0: Yeah, with the especially with the, I think this this example is really going to illustrate the point you're making, which is that the people when they heard this information didn't want it to some extent didn't want it to be true because then they're a part of the reason that the mortality rate was so so high. So then mm-hmm. they have a, they have a vested interest in believing that they're not the reason people are dying. So then how do you how do you change the discussion in a way where people can realize the benefits of the change without or not not wanting to change? And protect their ideals and i think i think like that guy's a really good example of not like how not to do it like don't yell at people <laughs> like like people kept telling them like do your research like get some data and people will listen to you because you can't like you can argue with data but at a, cer- at a certain point the data stands for itself so i think like this example really does illustrate your point of getting society ready for it through data through pre- preparation and and the benefit of that is more widespread acceptance you know like if we had something that was paradigm shifting and like washing your hands. <laughs> do people not wash
1: their hands? <laughs> well, before we get into that, I'm going to argue with your point about data. What I think we really need to do is have the stories ready, right? Because like you said, data might exist, but there are a lot of reasons for people not to accept information. What we need to do is be confident in the story that in, in our story of why we are doing this and what vision we have for the future. That sort of um that's the sort of certainty that we need to bring forth. And it's not about proselytizing. It's not about convincing people of uh, one thing or another. It's saying, hey, this is the world I see. This is the world I'm working towards. And I appreciate that maybe you don't see it quite yet, but we're going to work to, to bring everybody along for this ride, because that's what I think there's, there's been a lot lacking in particular in the, in the, uh, genetically modified organism world there's been more of a science is here to save the day sort of story rather than a discussion about what does your community need how can we help you build uh, the tools that you need to flourish and I think that's a really important shift that needs to needs to get made because people will fight for the things they want and right now they are they are not fighting for this and that's that's something to really deeply consider.
0: What can people do today to be supportive and what are you doing to get yourself to that point where you can make those contributions? Which is like two topics.
1: If people want to, you know, th- I think people should look at themselves and really ask, you know, what are the things I want to support right with my dollar, with my time? and then consider uh, kind of kind of take a look at all of the opportunities, all of the innovations, all of the methods out there, right? And say, which of these actually meshes with my ideals um, and there's there's often uh, more assumption than say fact checking that goes on um, and having the having the the critical mind, right, that can look at any given process or tool as a process or tool first and foremost, and then identify to which use that tool uh, might be suited and to which use you believe it is not suited, those are critical distinctions to make. And, you know, this this requires, you know, a little bit of self-education, a willingness to reflect, but it also requires the ability to say, to, to, to understand that a tool is, is just a tool, it's the implementation of that tool that we really need to focus on. Um, the fact is that we know how to interact with genetic material. We know how to change it. We know how to read it. We know a large number of things, but we don't know everything. So where do you draw the line on risk and knowledge and, and uh, application? Right? Um, one of the things that I am working on is a tool to help people do that. It is a series of questions, I guess, about, uh, you know, the, again, going back to this idea of how do you apply biology well? How do you establish a good use for this technology? What is the criteria? It's an attempt to make that criteria more widely available so everyone's speaking the same language. So when you look at a particular innovation, you can say where does this fall on the risk axis, on the benefit axis, on the technological depth axis, right? And establish for yourself where this new thing falls. Hopefully, you'll have some baselines, right? Where you'll, um, where you'll be able to see, okay, this use I approve of, this use I don't. Where does this one fall in between? But the idea is to make a make a functional tool that's useful to not only the public but also people that are just designing these experiments. You know, how do you how do you answer these questions for
0: yourself? Well, and I think a good analogy or story to illustrate the point you're making is if if you see the world, if you only have a hammer, you're going to see all your solutions are basically going to be hitting the hammer on something, right? So, But if you see the hammer as a tool and it's possible to create other tools like a screwdriver or things that don't just bash other things, you're going to have a much more larger spectrum of things to pull from to make your decision on what you're going to do. You know, sometimes the hammer is the right thing. You know, you got a nail, maybe, you know, hit it with a hammer. Mm-hmm. That's the right thing to do. Um, you know, there's a screw, you have a screw. So it's same thing, like echoing your point, like if you, if you, if you look at things as like the only thing, then you have the problem of only seeing the solutions in the same vein, you know? so.
1: And I think this is a, this is a issue biotechnology in particular faces because we have had to emphasize the utility of the tools that we have built. Um, I wrote an article for Popular Science a while ago that, that discuss this exact thing, right? Sometimes, uh, by by orienting your problem solving towards the solution rather than the technology, you end up, like you said, with a much um, first off a broader range of options to consider, but secondly, a better problem-solving capacity, right? So the the article focused on the work I did in the academic lab, which was looking at landmine detecting plants and uh, work that a group called Apopo has done, which uses rats to detect landmines. Now, Landmine-detecting plants, nobody, nobody was interested in investing in color-changing flowers. That's why revolution is no longer in business. But they were very interested in investing in landmine-detecting plants because it is a cool, sexy technology, right? You can imagine just these plants everywhere saving little kids from stepping on mines. It would be great. Um, the problem is when you think about implementation, that scenario gets real messy real fast, right? Because assume we can get the technical stuff right might happen. It's going to be a lot of time and effort because you can't have any false negatives, right? But assume that you get it right. Well, now you have these plans. How are you going to put them in the minefield? It's a minefield. You're not going to plant them there by hand, which means you're going to have to airdrop them, right? And if you're airdropping them, they're going to have to survive wherever it is they land. So you're going to have to make sure that these plants are not only capable of sensing the landmine, but also that they are robust and that they won't be outcompeted and they can survive in whatever environment they're in. And when you talk about a robust seed that grows wherever it lands, you are talking about a weed. So now you are airdropping a bunch of invasive species onto your landmine or onto your minefield uh, in the hopes that those plants, you know, will... Will grow. And and let's just assume that they do that. If you have a plant that grows and turns red, what do you still have to do? You still have to get rid of the landmine. It doesn't actually solve the problem. It's just a fun toy, right? And so what a popo does, in contrast, is it trains rats. And the rats are tiny. They're, they're less than a kilogram, so they won't set off the landmines. They can smell them. And they just walk up to it and they say, here it is. And then a person comes and deactivates a landmine, and the rat goes to the next one and says, "Oh, here's another one." And they proceed; they have demined the entire country of Mozambique with these rats. And it is not sexy; they are rats, but they are really effective and they are good. And that is a that is a very nice use of biotechnology, in my opinion. So I think remaining solution oriented is one of the one of the most compelling um, compelling ways to tell if your solution is the right one if your technology is the right one for the problem
0: thank you for joining us today with learning with lowell i am your host lowell thompson don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we can be found on twitter at lowell was here facebook and on the website learningwithlowell.com also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every monday new episodes every tuesday and new blog posts around every thursday remember to share and tell your friends please and thank you